it was eight years ago and um, I was sitting somewhere in the back here. It was my first time to Calvary Bible Church. My wife, Julie, was pregnant with our son, Jack. And um, we were both um, non-believers. And we uh, thought, well, we need a church, though. We need a church because uh, we need to uh, raise our family in a church. And um, I remember sitting back there and coming to hear Pastor Lau uh, teach. And um, it happened to be a family Sunday. And I was sitting back there just looking around at all these kids and families. And, and I was just like, wow, this is so cool. This is the place. This is it. And I went home and I told Julie, I found the place. I found the place. Calvary Bible Church, you got to come. And she came back. And I got to tell you, never in my wildest dreams at that point did I ever think sitting there in that back row that I would be standing up here today with the incredible opportunity to preach and teach the word of God. So to him, I give God the praise and the glory for that. Right now I'm in seminary. And what's really neat about seminary is you hear some just incredible stories from some of the men about things that they have been through, how God has brought them to this place, and just some of the uh, amazing things that he is doing through them in their lives. I know one man at seminary that by his own admission, admission says that he really shouldn't be there. Now he doesn't, he doesn't mean that he doesn't want to be there, but rather it is an exercise that technically speaking he should not be a part of. You see, this seminary is a master's program and he barely graduated high school. The school is primarily for college graduates with bachelor's degrees. Most of the students are from Bible schools and this man has only had a few Bible courses before this, Bible studies. His high school academic career was pitiful, not to mention that he graduated almost 20 years ago. Academics were not really the focus of the high school that he had gone to, and this can be attested to the fact that the man wrote maybe one, two papers tops in his whole high school career. He never read any of the English literature classics, doesn't even know how to type. He's never been very disciplined, academically speaking, and is known for his procrastination. Now, why on earth would this man set his mind on seminary? Well, he did because God called him into his service. This man knew that he needed knowledge, he needed wisdom, he needed disciplines, all of which seminary could provide. However, almost everything was working against him. He didn't know how he would pay for it. He didn't know how he would even accomplish the the rigors of study. And he was actually greatly discouraged by some of the people that were closest to him. One of which even told him, you will never be able to do it. You're not a student. To this was added, how will you pay for it? How will you take care of your family? How will you pay your bills? You don't just up and change careers at this stage in your life. How would this man pay for it? He had no clue. It's true, he wasn't a very good student. He couldn't even make it through one semester of an English grammar class at a community college before dropping out. In almost every respect, this man was weak when it came to the prospect of attending seminary. Now, the only hope he had was to absolutely trust and rely on God for everything. Well, no sooner had the decision been made to proceed than God started doing miraculous things in this man's life. He provided the needed funds. He provided work for the man to take care of his family. And he provided the academic know-how and discipline for this man to succeed. And let me tell you, this man knows that everything that has happened to him has been by the grace of God. God working through him when he was weak. He knows there would be no way possible for him to be able to do any of the things that he has been doing were it not for the hand of the Almighty. Now, does it mean that all of his weaknesses and hardships have just completely disappeared? No. Absolutely not. Some have given away to other hardships and some still remain. But you see, this is the way it's supposed to be. The man is to continue trusting in and relying on the Lord. And it is so very clear to him that it is a case of God's more than sufficient grace. And what does God get out of the deal? 
hopefully tons and tons of praise. Hopefully this man's life will be bring, will bring glory to God and will be a testimony to the awesomeness of God. Hopefully this very story will serve as a testament to how God's power could be perfected in this man's weakness, causing this man to be strong. Now in today's society, strength is considered a virtue and weakness is considered, well, to be weak. We are encouraged to be physically strong, are we not? Now, especially here in Los Angeles. I mean, come on. This is the land of the gym. This is the land of the workout. I mean, uh, we must have more gyms per capita, I think, than any other place I know of. I mean, we have an, an area in Venice called Muscle Beach. Now, for a time while I was an actor in Hollywood, my manager said that I needed to start working out. And he decided that I should be with a trainer at Gold's Gym in Venice, home to more muscles than you would find attached to the Venice Pier. Good, I'm glad you got that one. I was a little worried. And let me tell you, Gold's Gym in Venice is not for the faint-hearted. There are, uh, most women there could take me out with a flick of their finger. There is some serious strength going on at Gold's Gym. It is not a place for the tepid and frail. Now, had I not had a trainer who knew everybody in the place, believe me, I would have felt very out of place there. I mean, we're also encouraged to be not just physically strong, but we're encouraged to be strong of the mind. We teach our children to be strong, to stand up for themselves so they don't get pushed around. We are taught that to get what we want out of life, we have to be strong-willed. We have to be assertive. We are told that in order to be a success in the world, we have to be made of iron. We have to have be tough as nails. We can't let anyone bring us down. Again, Los Angeles is a, a breeding ground for mind-strengthening practices. Most of them not very profitable. Now, I, I didn't round up any actual statistics on this, but considering that this is a place where somebody's dog can have their own psychologist... There are probably more opportunities to receive therapy here than, again, any other place that I know of or have been to. Los Angeles is also the home to many self-help practices along with every conceivable religion under the sun. All to give us strength, to make us strong. But what about the Christian? Are we supposed to be strong? Are we supposed to follow the world and go after every body and soul strengthening formula that we can find? Are we supposed to be weak, as in faint-hearted, helpless, frail, pushovers? And think about the fact that, that as a Christian, God does call us into all kinds of service. I mean, certainly we, we must need, need, need physical strength to do service for the Lord. We must need some kind of spiritual strength to provide service. May I suggest to you that it is not so much a matter of whether or not we should be strong, but really how and where do we get that strength from? Now, the title of the sermon is When I Am Weak, Then I Am Strong, which is straight out of 2 Corinthians 12.10. And what we have here is a paradox. It is a seemingly contradictory statement that is indeed true. When I am weak, then I am strong. And in our text today, we're going to see three directives, three directives about how to deal with your weaknesses, along with three corresponding promises that will encourage us. And in the end, we will find the answer to the Christian's dilemma of how in our weakness we can be strong. Now, today we're going to look at a really great text. It's one that deals with our weaknesses and it deals with the Lord's power. And it's found in second Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Now, really quick, just let me give you a little idea of what has been going on in Corinth, the kinds of things that Paul has been up against. Really, the, the primary thing that we need to understand before going to this text is that there have been false teachers that have infiltrated the church at, at Corinth. Paul called them the false apostles. And they have absolutely started wreaking havoc with the gospel and everything that Paul was trying to do there. You see, these false apostles were really just looking to make a buck. And they needed Paul out of the way. As well, it is more than likely that the false apostles were boasting that they had been having visions and revelations from the Lord. Paul knew that this was false, of course. And finally, he relented to talk about his own visions and revelations simply to refute their claims. And when Paul does speak of them, 
Let me tell you, he does so in the most humble of ways, trying to keep the attention off himself and focused on the Lord where it should be. Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. As I said, our, our text for this morning is focusing on 7 to 10, but just to kind of get a little of the context and bring us up to speed in, in, in verse 7, we're going to go ahead and go back to verse 1 and, and, and read over this. So follow along, please, as I read 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 10. Paul writes, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to just go back here to to 12.1 for a, a moment where Paul says the boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. Now, what, what Paul is doing here is he is a- acknowledging that, that boasting doesn't do anybody any good. But because of the situation of the false apostles who put him in, he will boast. But as he says in 1130, I have, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. You see, he knew that his visions and revelations would become sources of temptation and pride for himself. He then goes on to relay the story of his visions and revelations of the Lord. When he says in 2.4, I know a man who in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now here, it's interesting to note that Paul is referring to himself in the third person, which really shows a a genuine humbleness about his experience and not wanting to relate it in a prideful way. The fact that it was 14 years ago tells us that it was not his conversion experience with Christ on the road to Damascus, but really one of several subsequent visions and revelations of the Lord that he had as referred to in the book of Acts. Now, with regards to this specific vision or revelation, Paul is certain though that he was caught up to the third heaven or paradise. Now some believe that the first heaven would be um, the sky, the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. The second heaven would be outer space, the stars, the galaxies, and that the third heaven is the abode of God. It is the place where God dwells. The very presence of God is the highest of the three heavens. Paul is also certain about what he heard, namely inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Possibly another language or something even beyond a mere language as we would think of a language. In any case, what he heard, he was not permitted to speak about. He knew that these visions and revelations were to be kept private. They were meant to be for him alone. Now, in addition, he also knew that he was not to boast in them or use them to prove his apostleship as the means to communicate God's truth to others. God's word as written in scripture was and still is to be the standard for all ministry. Now, this is very important as Paul did not want his apostolic authority coming from these visions. 
He did not want his authority to come from mystical experiences, unlike the false apostles who would be all too happy to share their experiences with people. Paul doesn't deny that he had had these experiences and that they were very real, but he certainly downplays their significance. He doesn't see them as a a means to edify the body of the church, nor did he wish to seem like he was some special kind of Christian for having received them. Now, in contrast to the false apostles, Paul knew these kinds of experiences were not to authenticate his ministry. He knew his authority only came from, as he wrote in 2 Timothy 2.15, the word of truth. Paul also acknowledges that he was uncertain about whether his body and soul were caught up in the third heaven together or if his soul maybe temporarily left his body. Well, caught up here is the same word in the Greek used for the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It can also be translated as snatched or, or seized or taken. But in any case, this was the one thing that he was uncertain of, yet he says that God knows. And ultimately, that's all that's really important. Now, in verses 5 to 6, Paul says, On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And here again, Paul is showing his humility by talking about himself in that third person when he speaks of his visions and revelations, but then goes right back to the first person when talking about his weaknesses. Uh, For a further explanation on boasting and and what Paul saw coming from the false false apostles, we, we can go back to 2 Corinthians 10, 17 to 18, where Paul writes, But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he who the Lord commends. Now, what's the reason Paul doesn't want to boast in himself? Well, we see the answer in verse 6. Again, it wouldn't be as if Paul wasn't speaking the truth about his visions and revelations, but he did not want the people to think more of him for having had these experiences. Instead, he wanted them to rely on what they have seen in him and heard from him in relation to God's truth. Hmm, Well, now finally we are at our primary text this morning, verses 7 to 10. And uh, if this wasn't good enough, this is where it really starts getting good. Look at verse 7. It says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Here we see one of Paul's many professed weaknesses, a thorn in his flesh. Now, there's been great debate over what this thorn actually was. And frankly, it's irrelevant to Paul's point that it was given to him so that he would not exalt himself. He would not be puffed up or prideful over these awesome revelations that God was giving to him. Now, merely as a point of interest, so we don't leave you hanging too much, we will tell you that that some believe his thorn was a physical ailment, like maybe um, migraine headaches, uh, could have been an eye problem or malaria Gout, rheumatism are are some possibilities, maybe a a speech impediment, while others claim it to be more uh, people-oriented, such as um, the thorn could be the false apostles or other people's persecution of him. Now, in any case, Paul does make it clear that he does make it clear who the invisible source of the thorn was. It was God brought on by a messenger of Satan. In Job, we see a similar situation where God allows Satan To afflict somebody. Now God gave Paul this thorn because he knew those visions and revelations would be a source of temptation and pride for Paul. You see, somebody like Paul could easily see himself as a pretty powerful guy being as close to the Lord as he was. I mean, God had shown him some pretty amazing things, not the least of which was a personal encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. The man stood face to face with Jesus. Now the problem, of course, with, with power is, is we so easily get drunk by it. And in no time, we start exalting ourselves. This is something I've seen many times in the entertainment industry. The minute somebody starts having some measure of success, they crave more success. And with that success, they, they, they get a little taste of power and they want more power. 
And you start to see all kinds of horrible and grotesque characteristics appear in them. They, they start to maybe become demanding. They get power hungry, ego trips, arrogant, prideful, cocky. As Paul says, self-exalting. They see themselves as pretty, being pretty high on the pedestal. I think that we all are still possibly licking our wounds from Pastor Jack's sermons on pride a few months back, so we'll, we'll go easy on that one today. But you, you might ask yourself, do I have a thorn in my side? And if so, do I know why it's there? Or do I need to figure out why it's there? Or maybe you need a thorn in your side. Now, thorns from God should not necessarily be viewed as a negative. In fact, not only does Paul's thorn keep him from exalting himself, it actually becomes a helper in his sanctification. You see, it allows him to become more Christ-like. It allows him to become more meek and gentle. It allows him to, to, to have humbleness bred inside of him. And it is the cause for endurance and patience. How might your thorn actually be helping you? We go on to verse 8. And yet, even before these things are evident, Paul does ask the Lord three times in verse 8 to remove it. Similar to Christ asking three times in the garden that God might relieve him of his suffering. A little, a little side note about thorns and weaknesses and sufferings. These are not things that we need to wish for. These are not things that we need to desire. And like Paul and Christ, we can certainly petition the Lord for their removal when they are upon us. But at some point, if our affliction continues, then, well, we eventually need to accept the Lord's will for us. Christ accepted the Father's will in the garden. And Paul, even though he was persistent in his prayer, eventually accepts Christ's will. Well, Jesus then answers Paul in regarding uh, the removal of his thorn in verse 9 and basically says, <laughs> no, nope. And here is our, our first directive or our first charge, if you will. And that is that God's grace is all you need to get through your times of weakness. Look at the first half of verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, this is great because we are getting to the main course. As, as Jack would say, we are getting to the filet mignon, or if you prefer, we are getting to the Chilean sea bass of this text. God's grace is sufficient. Well, we know in its most basic sense that, that grace is God's unmerited favor upon us. It is... <clears throat> God giving us what we don't deserve. It's God's merciful greatness. And he is saying, that is all you need, Paul. You don't, you don't have to have your thorn removed, your weakness to be taken away. What you need is to trust my grace. You need to trust my favor towards you. It's the same for us. We need to trust that God offers us in his grace everything we need for life and godliness. Second Peter 1, 3. Friends, this is totally contrary to what the world would have us believe. Even in the church, there exist many who believe that God's grace is not sufficient for us, that his grace is not sufficient for all the problems of life. The world wants to offer us psychology to deal with our problems or, or even the opposite. We are told simply to buck it up. And oftentimes the church doesn't even offer us much different advice. The church may see God's grace as being useful for saving us. But ironically, for the woes of life, the, the sufferings, the trials, when things start getting a little rougher, a little deeper, a little more complex, then suddenly God's grace is not sufficient. Now, we're told that we, we, we need to go see a psychologist or, or, or we need therapy. Now, of course, even today we have Christian psychologists who, who try and, and kind of meld the two, but still usually fall short of a total reliance on the power of Christ and the sufficiency of his grace. Folks, I'm telling you, we need to stop tuning in to Dr. Laura. We need to stop tuning in to Dr. Phil. And we need to start turning into the Bible. I mean, this is God's holy word, is it not? Where we see that his grace is sufficient. Okay, here's a novel idea. Why don't we just look to see what his word says? I'm going to run through a little laundry list here. Of how we can, we can use God's word 
in our life. Psalm 19, 7, 11 speaks of God's grace through his word as transforming the soul. Second Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says God's word is profitable. James 3, 17 brings us God's wisdom while 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 21 and 2, 5 and 3, 19 counter with the foolishness of human wisdom. Colossians 7.10 says that we are complete in Christ. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 2 Corinthians 3.5, our adequacy is from God. Psalm 44.21, for he knows the secrets of our heart. And finally, Hebrews 4.12, that God's word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I'm sure that this is just a sampling of God's grace being sufficient. Folks, friends, we have to think big about our God of all sufficient grace. I mean, this God who is powerful and mighty enough to have formed planets, to have formed stars, to have given us a a, a galaxy and a solar system, and at the same time displays his most delicate artistry in the form of a fly's compound eye made up of 4,000 hexagon facets to the intelligent intricacies of our human brains. God is the creator of all these incredible things. Do we really for a second think that he cannot help us in our weakness? This sufficiency of grace is a truth for us to own in our life right here, right now. And it is ongoing. And it is sufficient for the greatest weakness or, or, or deepest pain that any of us could be possibly experiencing. Charles Spurgeon had this to say. He said, the nearness of an object increases its apparent bulk. And so the affliction under which we are at present laboring, seems greater than any we have known before. Past trials appear when we have passed them to have been small things compared with present troubles. And therefore the difficulty is to see the sufficiency of grace for present and pressing afflictions. It is easy to believe in grace for the past and the future, but to rest in it for the immediate necessity is true faith. Believer, it is now that grace is sufficient. Even at this moment, it is enough for thee. And friends, it is enough for you. Now, part of what's included in this grace is is comfort. Comfort for our distresses. Comfort for our weaknesses, our trials, our tribulations. Isaiah 43, 1-2 says, But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob... And he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. And there are many other verses that speak of God's comfort, God's goodness, his mercy, as well as being able to endure the hardships of life. And some of these are, are Deuteronomy 33, 26. I'm just going to give you a couple more. Joshua 1, 9, 1 Corinthians 10, 3, and Hebrews 14, 16. Beloved, do we dare say that God's grace is not sufficient to get us through the obstacles of life? Now, equally as awesome is our first promise, which, which goes with our first challenge, our first directive. And the promise is this, that God will use you for mighty things because of your weakness. Look at the middle of verse 9. For power is perfected in weakness. Now, obviously, Paul is talking about Christ's power and his weaknesses. And the fact that Christ displays his power through Paul's weaknesses. And what are some of Paul's weaknesses? We've, a lot of us are, are, are familiar with these. Sure, there's things like um, what 2 Corinthians 10.10 says, that his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. What about some other things mentioned in the Bible? Like, um, how about labors, imprisonment, beatings that brought him close to death, lashes, being beaten with rods, being stoned almost to death, being shipwrecked and spending a night and a day clinging to some wreckage out in the ocean. 
journeys which brought him all kinds of dangers, including rivers, robbers, threats from false brethren, from Gentiles, and even from his own countrymen. There were, there were more labors. There were more hardships. There were sleepless nights. There was hunger. There was thirst. There was being exposed to the elements, extreme hot and extreme cold. <laughs> and this is amazing because if that wasn't enough... Paul says that there is still the daily pressure on him of concern of all the churches in 1128 and also the intense concern over those who sin. Let me tell you, I would be more concerned about hanging on to a piece of wreckage out in the middle of the ocean probably than being concerned with my flock at that moment in time. I would venture to say that it would not be surprising if these sleepless nights that Paul spent were not because of the beatings and the shipwrecks, but were because of his deep concern for the churches, the flock, and his people. Paul says in 1130, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. This is incredible. And I feel like I'm turning into Albert Brooks from, uh, from the movie when he gets the flop sweat going on, you know? What about you? What are some of your weaknesses? What are the areas in your life that overwhelm you? That seem too great to handle or that just plain hurt? Is it money? Is it a lack thereof? Is it a stressful job or maybe even no job? Is it a difficult living situation that you're in? Is it strained family relations? Is it poor health or, or unwise life decisions? <clears throat> Excuse me. Maybe behind some of these weaknesses even lurks arrogance or pride or lust or wrongful desires. Well, this isn't always the case, but it was the reason for Paul's thorn. Anyway, you fill in the blank. Paul tells us in chapter 4, verse 7, that as believers, we are earthen vessels. We are jars of clay that contain the treasure of the gospel of Christ. We are fragile, breakable, disposable containers of God's power. And why does it have to be this way, you might ask? And this is really the big question, isn't it? Why do we have to be weak for Christ to manifest his strength in us? Why does God want us to be in this lowly state before he chooses to perfect his power in us? Well, because he wants our absolute trust. He wants our sole reliance. He wants our total dependence to be on him. And him alone. You see, this way, God will receive all the glory. Because God will not share his glory with another, including you and me. When we are acting in our own strength, our own abilities, you see, there's no room for God. We push him out. We no longer want to rely on him. We want to control our own destiny. We as human beings, we we want to make all of the decisions concerning our life because, hey, we think we know best. We want to make sure that we get the things that we want, the things that we think we deserve, whether it's health or wealth or positions of influence or careers, etc. We want the praise and the adoration for having done it ourselves. I did this. Job well done. What you need to do, friends, is lay your weaknesses, lay your sufferings, lay your trials, and lay your hardships at Christ's feet and tell him that you trust him. And wait and see if he doesn't do incredible things with you and through you. You know, I I used to wonder why God never allowed me to make it big as an actor. I mean, believe me, it was not for lack of trying. I was in the entertainment industry for more than 20 years. And uh, God was very good to me in that he allowed me to make my living at it. And he allowed me to, 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 to pay our bills. But I was constantly always wondering, God, when am I going to get the big one? When do I get the series, God? 
When do I get the big movie? When's the, the ball going to start rolling and just snowball? When am I going to, uh, you know, I don't need a ton of money, God. I need enough, though, to make sure that my family's provided for. We can go on some nice vacations a few times a year. I won't ever have to think of money. It won't be an issue. When, God? When is it going to happen? And it's funny, I used to joke because uh, I would say to people, if, if, if you want your career to really get jump-started and to get going, just come and do a movie with me. Because uh, all my co-stars like went on to you know great things. And all the times that I would uh, get something, I think, oh man, this is the one, this is the one. Just kind of went nowhere. Well, now I know. Now I can see. Because if God had given me these things, these were my weaknesses. These were things where I was, I was weak in my thinking. I was weak in my desires. And if God had given me these things, only he knows what I would have become. Only he knows what they would have done to me. I imagine it would not have been for my good. It would not have profited me. And instead, I praise him that I can look back and say, I get to stand in front of people sharing God's word with them. I was thinking about that this morning. I'm sitting there looking at my notes up in my office. I used to spend mornings on a set, a film set, where I would go into my trailer and I would sit there with my script pages. And I would just kind of sit there and they have a mirror in front of you. Isn't that terrible? There's mirrors everywhere on film sets. And I would just kind of look in the mirror and just kind of take it all in and go, wow, I'm making a movie. <laughs> this is pretty cool. And let me tell you this morning, I got to sit there in my office without a mirror and look at God's word and go, man, I get to go preach God's word today. Praise him. And I can see how God was able to, to, um, change my heart, praise him and make me strong in my weakness. So what is this power? Hmm? What is this power of Christ that we're promised? This power of Christ, quite simply, it's the gospel. It is the death and resurrection of the Savior. You see, where Christ became weak, taking on the form of a human being and suffering in that nature through his crucifixion, taking on the sins of men and the punishment of God, he became the absolute epitome of strength in his resurrection from the dead. He trumps Satan and he promises that everlasting life is possible and will be had by all who would believe. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. Let me tell you, if Christ had saved him on that cross, saved himself on that cross, he could not have saved us. But because he took off his robe of strength and he put on those rags of weakness, he was made strong to redeem us. And to say that Christ's power is perfected really means that it becomes a reality. And not only was it a reality for Paul, friends, but it is also a reality for you and me. You see, when we are weak, when we give it all up to God, when we stop our boasting, we stop our relying on our, ourselves, then Christ can use us. He will put his power on display in us for his glory and our own good, as well as the good of his kingdom. Philippians 4.13, again, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All through the Bible, God gives us examples of people for whom his power was perfected in their weakness in Exodus 3.11, Moses, while actually speaking with Yahweh himself in the story of the burning bush, asked, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And then later on in 4.1, he, he inquires of God again. What, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And then in verse 10, he tells the Lord that he has never been eloquent because he is slow of speech and tongue because basically, God, I'm not a good speaker. And finally, in verse 13, please, Lord, please now send the message by whomever you will, meaning send somebody else, Lord, not me. We certainly know the end of this story and the kinds of things that God did through Moses, this once weak and despairing man. Or what about Joseph? Joseph, a man who was hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold to the Ishmaelites, sold as a slave to Potiphar, accused of rape, and finally thrown into prison. 
I'd say the man had some weaknesses. I'd say he had some hardships that he had to deal with. Well, we also know the end of that story. He became second in command of Pharaoh over all of Egypt and saw how God used his weaknesses and distresses for his own good and ultimately for God's glory. What about the 12 disciples? Man, were we given not a great portrait of them up here from this pulpit recently? What a mixed bag of ragtag, imperfect men, sinful, ordinary men, full of weaknesses and issues and problems. And Christ used them to turn the world upside down. The great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, was removed from his church of 20-something years for his preaching. While John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, was thrown into jail also for his preaching of God's word. John Bunyan left his wife and four children to survive on their own, including his blind 10-year-old daughter. And in spite of all this, the man wrote these words of his experiences. I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now, meaning while he was in prison. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ was also never more nearer, more real and apparent than now. Being very tender of me, God hath not suffered me to be molested, but would with our scripture and another strengthen me against all. Insomuch that I have often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. End quote. The powerful preacher Charles Spurgeon again had his own weaknesses and troubles. The man dealt with recurring bouts of depression. He received much criticism and persecution as he battled theological liberalism of his day with his preaching of the Bible. The criticisms often coming from other pastors. His wife was an invalid for most of their marriage and Spurgeon himself had his own physical ailments that caused him to spend about a third of his last 27 years of ministry out of the pulpit. Listen to what he said about this very phrase, power is perfected in weakness. God's strength is made perfect to the saint's own apprehension when he is weak. Brothers, if you have prospered in business all your lives and have had an easy path of it, I will tell you something. You do not know much about the strength of God. You do not know, excuse me. If you have been healthy all your lives and never suffered, if your families have never been visited by bereavements, and if your spirits have never been cast down, you do not know much about the strength of God. Oh, you may have read it about it in books, and it is well you should. You may have seen it in others, and observation is useful, but a grain of experience is worth a pound of observation, and you can only get knowledge of the power of God by an experimental acquaintance with your own weakness. And you will not be likely to get that except as you are led along the thorny, flinty way which most of God's saints have to travel, which is described by the word tribulation. Great tribulation brings out the great strength of God. If you never feel inward conflicts and sinking of soul, you do not know much of the upholding power of God. But if you go down, down into the depths of soul anguish till the deep threatens to shut her mouth upon you and the Lord rides upon a cherub and does fly, yea, rides upon the wings of the wind and delivers your soul and catches you away to the third heaven of delight, then you perceive the majesty of divine grace. Oh, there must be the weakness of man felt, recognized, and mourned over, or else the strength of the Son of God will never be perfected in us. End quote. Well, moving on to the last part of verse 9, Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, here we have our second directive, which is turn your weaknesses over to Christ and trust in him. And it's accompanying promise, so you will have the power of Christ inside of you. Now, we're going to combine this one with verse 10, which also shows us our third and final directive and promise, both of which are are pretty obvious in the text. The text reads, therefore, I am well with content, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The directive being, be content. 
which is to say, be satisfied, even joyful in all your infirmities that life deals with you. And the promise is Christ's power will make you strong. Here, Paul begins to wrap up what he has come to know and believe about his weaknesses and how they relate to the power of Christ. Paul clearly understands Christ's decision and admonition that his grace is sufficient and his power is perfected in Paul's weakness. And he's even glad for it. The man is content with it. In fact, not just content, but he will boast about his weaknesses as opposed to his visions and revelations so that the power, excuse me, the grace, truth, love, patience, suffering, and resurrection of Christ, Christ the creator, Christ the one who in total humbleness made himself nothing so as to glorify his father, that this Christ's power will dwell in him. So let me ask you, looking at verse 10, What are the things in your life that you need to be content with so that Christ's power may dwell in you? Well, just take Paul's list here and and substitute in the things going on with you. And tell me, would it read something like this? Therefore, I am well content with not having a job that I love, with not having much money, with not being a great student, with not having a nice car. I am well content when people seem better at things than I am, when I am envious or jealous, when someone else gets the promotion that I thought I deserved, when other people seem to get all the perks. Am I well content even after the death of a loved one or when faced with a life-threatening illness or even when I just have the flu? Am I well content when my spouse walks out on me? When my husband or wife are not treating me as they should, when my boss is a jerk, or when my coworkers want nothing to do with me, am I well content when I am ostracized by my family because of my faith and looked down upon by people who I thought were friends? Am I well content when I am trying to make ends meet, when I'm faced with a broken relationship, when I struggle just to get through each day? And why be content? Why be joyful in these things? Because we know that through these things and our trust and our reliance on Christ to help us, the power of Christ will dwell in us and allow us to get through any and all situations. And as the middle of verse 10 says, doing it for Christ's sake. In other words, friends, it is so that he gets the adoration and praise. We need to remember, friends, that as followers of Christ, no matter what our situation is, no matter what trials and sufferings or hardships or difficulties that we may be going through, we are his ambassadors. We represent Christ to the world out there. Paul suffered for the one he represented, and so shall we. And what an awesome and noble calling it is to suffer for the one who gave you life the one who loves you, the one who will get you through life and the one who will ultimately give you eternal life. Folks, the idea here is not to ask God to bring on suffering to us or, or to wish for distresses or desire hardships. But when we are called to go through these things, the goal then changes to having a proper perspective and understanding and dealing with these trials. Now, of course, we can pray for their removal, but when God allows them to continue at some point, we need to embrace them. We need to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, says James. Paul stops asking for his weakness to be removed and is instead pleased to suffer knowing that to end verse 10 and here is the key, when I am weak, then I am strong. Christ makes us strong. And beloved, you have to believe it. If you have a relationship With Christ, you can be filled with his perfect power. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ, 
I would encourage you today to cry out to him. Recognize that you are a sinner in need of a savior and know that by placing your faith in Christ and Christ alone, believing that he is Lord and Savior, that he died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death, in believing this in your heart and trusting Christ, then you too can have Christ's power perfected in your weakness. Lastly, it's interesting to note that when Christ's strength comes, it doesn't mean an end to our troubles and sufferings. They don't just magically vanish. But rather, it is an ongoing, simultaneous relationship between the two, our weakness and Christ's strength. As one commentator wrote, such strength is not automatic to weakness. Rather, weakness creates the human context of helplessness and utter vulnerability in which Paul, the minister of Christ, pleaded with the risen, powerful Lord, who himself was once utterly weak and sin-laden and poor in achieving a reconciliation with God, who is now strong in resurrected power to give his grace and power to the one who calls out to him. So along with these directives and promises that we have seen, we just want to remember that one boasting in ourself is not profitable for it causes us to be self-exalting. Two, boasting in the Lord is profitable. Three, God's grace is sufficient when we are weak. Four, God's power is perfected when we are weak. Five, we should be glad and content in our weaknesses and sufferings for Christ's sake And six, when we are weak, Christ makes us strong. I will leave you with a a poem delivered by Charles Spurgeon when he preached on this very text of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, back in April of 1876. He said, Have we forgot the almighty name that formed the earth and sea? And can an all-creating arm grow weary or decay? Treasures of everlasting might in our Jehovah dwell. He gives the conquest to the weak and treads their foes to hell. Mere mortal power shall fade and die and youthful vigor cease. But we that wait upon the Lord shall feel our strength increase. Let's pray. Father, I am so very blessed to be up here today to be able to Share your word with these folks. I thank you, Lord, that we can just relax, God, in our weaknesses. We can just uh, have comfort in them. We can be content with them. We can be joyful in them, God. Because we can turn them over to you, Father. So whoever out there today might be in the middle of some kind of suffering or trial or hardship, and not to make it sound like it has to be some some major thing in our life, God, it might be something small. Lord, please, I pray that your word would just have an impact on their heart and they would see that all they have to do is give it up to you, God, to turn it over to Christ. Say, Christ, you take this from me. You take my weakness. You take my infirmity. And he will. And this is the great, great promise you give us, God. And you will indeed take that weakness and you will make us strong. And Lord, may we give you the glory and the praise. It's in your son's name I pray this morning. Amen.